You're listening to City Church. Man, I couldn't be more excited to be with you this morning. We are just excited to begin to run with you guys. Um, as I look out, I actually see some familiar faces, which is cool. I see a lot of faces that aren't yet familiar, but I look forward to those faces becoming familiar. I was up at the uh, encounter a couple weekends ago, which was awesome. And if you haven't been, we're going to encourage you when that thing comes up again to to jump on that because it was great. I got a chance to spend some time with with Lewis and Robbie, who some of you guys know. And so, yeah, so Saturday night, I'm I'm hanging out with Lewis and and he goes, man, I got to be honest. He he says this to me, right? He goes, man, when I saw you up on that video, I was like, who is this guy? And I'm like, all right, all right. He's like, but you're all right. You're all right. So, man, I bet you that's a question a lot of you guys are asking, like, who is this guy? And so before I get into talking, I just want to spend maybe 10 minutes or so just introducing myself so you can know me a little bit. We'll have plenty of time. I hope and I pray that, that I can hear your story, your details, and I can tell you more about mine and all the things that God's been doing in our hearts. And we look forward to, to learning about, you know, what God's been doing in yours as well. But I grew up in, uh, in western Massachusetts. Um, in the Springfield area, in Springfield for the first 10 or 15 years, and then in the surrounding towns of Springfield. And my parents, who are awesome, they came to know Jesus right around the time I was born. And so my dad played football at American International College up there, and so one of his football teammates led him to Jesus. And so, again, that was right around the time I was born, about 30 years ago. And so they get, they get involved in this church, and this church is uh, just about to start a school. And so, you know, my dad just finishes his degree in education, and so he begins teaching at the school. And he stayed there for about 25 years, and so I, I grew up, man, two years of preschool, kindergarten, and then one through 12 at this small Christian school. Anybody do small Christian schools here? A couple of us? Yeah? Yeah. So, um, so that was my experience. Um, it was this, this really incredible place where teachers loved God. They wanted to teach us how to love God. Uh, my parents were modeling that for me at home. It was like I was, I was growing up in this greenhouse of faith. But like, like a greenhouse that fails, like nothing grew in my heart. Spiritually, there was just, there was nothing going on. And so for my first 20 years or so, I was this like really selfish, like really self-absorbed person who just really made all my decisions based on like, what did I want to do? What did I think was best? And what, what is the thing that, you know, most pleases me right now? And so that was my first 20 years. And, you know, I look back and I'm like, man, what wasted opportunity those 20 years. But, but so I go off to college and I went to Western New England University, which is also in Springfield. Um, I, I applied to a bunch of schools and that was the only one nearby. And that was the one I ended up at, which is I was totally looking to get out. And I ended up still in Springfield. And I was like, awesome. That's, that's great. So I end up there and... Um, and so I, I start dating my wife my freshman year. And at this point, I'm, I'm still not following Jesus. I'm still this, this obnoxiously selfish person. And so we date for like a year or so. And then it blows up. Because if you've ever been super selfish and tried to date someone, it often doesn't go very well. And so she flies out to Colorado State where she goes to school. And, um, and, and like I said, it blows up. And so what happens is right around the time we break up, um, God brings a few different trains into the station. And so he kind of levels me. And so for the first time in my life, I'm kind of, I'm super humbled. I'm super brought really low. And finally, I, I, I just turn and I'm just like, man, I, I can't do this on my own. Like, God, I need you. And James 4, 8 tells us, man, draw near to God and, and he will draw near to you. And that's exactly what my experience was. It was like I, I take this one kind of turn and, and small step towards the Lord. And it's like, boom, and he surrounds me with these awesome dudes. And, and this kindling that was on my heart that had been being laid for the past 20 years just ignites and erupts with faith at long last. And it was incredible. 
And so these next six months, these four or five guys who love Jesus and love their families well, they, they grab a hold of me and like every meal, I'm basically with one of these guys, like breakfast and lunch and dinner. And it's like, okay, tomorrow, breakfast and lunch and dinner. And I get this beautiful picture of what it means to follow Jesus. And I finally see it and I finally catch it because I've been watching it for most of my life, but I'd never caught it before then. And so I'm, I'm halfway through school at this point. Um, and the Lord begins to stir some things in my heart. I'm, I'm studying engineering at the time, and, and the Lord begins to just, just turn that a little bit. And so I get involved leading worship at my church. And um, as, I, as I'm doing that, I just really begin to feel God like kind of putting this desire to, to serve in the church. And, and so, um, you know, I'm kind of not really sure what to do with that. And, and my wife comes home from... Uh, her year out in Colorado, and we start hanging out again. And what was really, really cool was as I began to share my story of all that God had done in my heart over these last six months, she's like, man, the same thing's been happening in her mind. And it was really, really cool. And I'm like, so remember that whole engineering thing that I've been telling you I was going to do? You know, I actually think I'm going to, you know, work at a church one day. And, and was trying to articulate this, this call that I began to sense. So anyways, we, we you know, finish up college, and, and I get a job at Sargent Manufacturing, which is down on, on Long Wharf, and uh, that's actually what brought us down to Connecticut. So I take this position as an engineer, and, and all the while, I'm just kind of like, Lord, I'm, I'm gonna, just going to go through the open doors that you give me. And so he's opening doors in the field of engineering, and so I walk through them, and that's what brings us down. And so we get married. This was seven years ago. Um, we got married, and uh, we, we end up finding this church down in Fairfield called Black Rock Church. And uh, it kind of became home for us, and, and within three or four months, one thing leads to another. I find myself on staff, and just a few months after that, on a part-time basis, and then a few months after that, um, I end up full-time, and I leave engineering, and so that's where I had been for the last uh, six years. I was serving on staff at a church in Fairfield called Black Rock Church, and so that, that's kind of what brought us to today. And um, I don't know if you noticed, but my wife is pregnant, like... We're past the point of hiding it, you know what I mean? I mean, she's like seven and a half months, like we're, we're beginning to, we're getting in go time here. And so, you know, she's kind of like, it's the place where, you know, we're sitting there and I'm like, pass the cup. And she's like, oh yeah, perfect. You know, takes it right off her belly where it's been leaning for the last, you know, seven or last couple minutes. And, and so as we begin to, we begin to sort of prepare for this, it's, it's a major shift in our lives that we couldn't be more excited about. And, um, man, really excited that you guys are going to kind of get to partner with us in this. And we're, like I said, seven or eight weeks out. And so we're, we're talking about it, and she's like, so how do you think it's going to go, like, when the birth time comes? I mean, that's when dad's time is, like, to step up, right? And I'm kind of like, you know, I'm going to do awesome, but I actually have no reason to think that's true. Man, I, I've left her no reason to have confidence that she's, she's going to be able to count on me in that moment. So my wife is, is, a, is a medical person, um, and, and she's a physician assistant. She comes from a medical family, and her dad's a uh, dentist, and her mom's a nurse, her brother-in-law's a, a dentist, her her sister's a nurse, and so we sit around, you know, the dinner table, and it's like that Sesame Street song, like, one of these things is not like the other. It's like, who brought the artsy music guy? Because that's what I was before. Like, he doesn't hold a scalpel? You know, I'm not really sure. And so, you know, inevitably, every time we have dinner, we end up talking about what is on my plate, it looks like, because they're talking about their day and the surgery that they did, and I'm just like, yeah, that looks like what I'm eating. Can we stop it? I, I got the gift of a queasy stomach. Anybody else know what that's like? Queasy stomach? Okay, so it's just me in the room. Awesome. Great, great. That makes me feel really confident. So, so I, I got the gift of a queasy stomach when it comes to, you know, the blood and, you know, all that guts and stuff. And so 
uh, when she was in school, she graduated in August from, from Quinnipiac. And so her second year of school, she had to do these rotations. And so every six weeks, she would go to a new site. And, and so she goes to um, her surgery rotation. And it's at this hospital in New London. And she's super excited because uh, um, she's correcting me. It was her OB rotation. So there you go for that little nugget. Um, she comes home, and, and she had been planning on being able to deliver babies and, and be on that team that night. And so she comes home, and I've been gearing up for it, right? So I'm like, oh, how was your day? Oh, it was great? Good. Okay, I'm going to go this way, you know. But she's like, let me tell you about my day. And so you'll learn with my wife that when she's going to tell a story, you are going to hear every detail. So we go away on vacation, and people are like, how was the trip? And I was like, man, it was awesome. But we had this fun thing, and she's like, Monday morning. Got up around 8 o'clock. First, we started with some eggs. I think I had a little salt and pepper on my eggs. Did you have ketchup? And, and it was like, all right. So I'm like, and I'm thinking, you, you just committed, man, to hear this story. You didn't know what you were asking for. And so she launches into the story. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And she talks about this birth that ended well, but really didn't go so well. All right? You know what I mean? And so she's telling me every single detail about what's going wrong. And the doctor's doing this. And I'm just like, whoa, uh-uh. And she's going into every single intimate detail and i've got this vivid imagination so it's like i'm in the room and i'm watching it in my mind on the big screen all right and it's not going well for this poor lady and she tell me every detail and then this happened and this person came running in and the doctor was doing this to her and i'm just like mm. and so finally i'm like all right babe like that's enough i i can't and i'm laying down at this point so i begin to sit up and all of a sudden wham i go over all right And if you've ever passed out, it is a bizarre experience because the last thing you remember is you're on the couch and suddenly I'm like, how did I teleport to the floor? Right? Because I don't remember making it there, but I'm on the couch, I'm on the floor. I'm like, I missed the in-between. And so I, you know, I'm sweating and my eyes are kind of doing like little dances and stuff. And and I look up and I'm like, and, and my face is in her hands and she's cracking up. And I'm like, how did I make it to the floor? I'm so confused. So if you're wondering how you can be praying for me over these next couple months, do it. Come on, be praying for me, because I want to be good in that moment. Not a whole lot of confidence going into it right now. So that's our story. That's kind of what brings us to today. And um, man, again, excited, looking forward to getting to know you guys and, and uh, you know, letting you get to know us a little bit more. Hope to get to meet you later if I haven't already. But if you've got your Bibles, let's get going here. We'll turn to Matthew chapter 9. If, uh, if you are new to the Bible, there's a table of contents in the front, and you'll see Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, and so we're going to go there in chapter 9. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. Uh, the words will be up on the screen behind me. So starting in, in verse 9, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's uh, let's pray together. As we were singing earlier, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. We so want to hear from you this morning. want to hear from you. want you to speak to our hearts. God, where conviction is needed, would you do that? Where encouragement is needed, would you do that? And so we just open our hands and our hearts to you this morning and just say, speak. 
I think of my friend Roger who's preaching up in New Haven right now. I got to pray blessing on him. Pray for just the courage and anointing on his words. And again, be with us as we're, we are believing you to be. We trust you. We love you. And we're grateful for you. And in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, in October of 2002, um, it was one of those, those horrible rainy days, horrible October days that makes you think winter is right around the corner. And um, I remember it really, really vividly because we were outside, me and 30 of my buddies who were on the men's soccer team up at Western New England, and it was conference playoffs. And so it's a, it's a miserable day. The wind is, is going sideways. It's super muddy, and it's not making for great soccer. And so we get to the end of 90 minutes, and it's, it's a soccer fan's nightmare. It's 0-0, zero, zero, right? And so we get to the end of the 90 minutes. You've got to go on because it's playoffs. And so another 15, nothing, another 15, nothing. And if you know anything about soccer, what happens then is you go to penalty kicks. And so what happens is your team picks five guys, their team picks five guys. And so they go, you go, they go, you go, so on. And then at the end of it, you see who's got more and that team advances. And so what ends up happening is I end up one of the five guys. And so their five guys go and our, four of our guys have gone and I'm still left to shoot. All right. So score is at this point tied. I think it's 3-3. Three, three. And so you know, if I make it, we win. And I'm beginning to look around the field. I mean, this is my freshman year. And so I'm thinking, you know, small fish in a big pond. Like, I'm going out on some shoulders if I can knock this thing in. And I'm pretty sure my reputation is set for my next four years if I can bury this thing. So I'm looking around and class has gotten out. And the field is just surrounded three or four people deep. And I'm like, this is my moment. This is my moment. And so ref calls me forward. And it's this long walk from half field where you get to think about all this. And, and so... Put the ball down, he blows his whistle, all right? And so imagine, again, lots of rain, it's nasty out. So, so I, go to, I go to, you know, kick this thing. And so I go, I'm going to plant on this foot, boom, I go to swing. Well, this foot slips, all right? And so what happens is I go to kick, and all of a sudden it goes, boom, and I hit this thing about 75 feet in the air. So if you had stacked the goals about three or four high, it would have cleared it. I mean, it was like a football field goal versus like a soccer shot. And so what ends up happening is, is, it's not even close, right? And so I, I walk off the field. Their guy makes it. Ours misses it. Boom. Game over. Season over. Just like that. And so, man, it's like five minutes later. You shake the hands. Your, your head is all low. And, and I find myself walking off the field. I got this little, little, little tear running down my cheek. And I'm like, man, this is, this is not what I was dreaming. This is not how I thought this moment was going to go for me. And I realized as I think about that, the weight of that moment for me was that I felt like this massive disappointment to my team, to my coach, to the fans. I feel like I had let everyone down. Like it was my moment to step up and instead I let the thing go. And I began to think about that in, in our Christian walk and I thought, man, how many times have I felt like I've disappointed God? Like it was my moment. It was my moment to, to step up it was my moment to conquer that sin that I had been battling for a while. It was that moment to, to finally tell my coworker about Jesus, and I didn't step up. And I thought the same thing. I thought, you know, there have been moments in, in me as a husband where I felt like I was such a disappointment where I left my wife, let my wife down. You know, maybe you're, you're a wife here, and, and you feel like, you know, I, I thought I conquered this anger thing, and yet I find myself blowing up at my family, and I feel like such a failure I feel like such a disappointment. 
Maybe it's your job. You leave here on Sunday and you're like, God, this week is going to be different. And by Monday at 10.30, you find yourself all riled up with everything that's going on. And you're spouting off things in your, with your, your words. And you're like, Jesus, that doesn't honor you. And I know that. And I thought I'd been better. I sure thought I was past that, Jesus. And your, your shoulders begin to, to sloop a little bit. And you, head your, you hang your head. Like, Jesus, I've let you down again. I've let you down again. Maybe you're a student and you feel this massive weight of expectations on your shoulders. You feel like your parents have these, these standards for you that you just can't seem to meet. And so every time you bring the report card home, you kind of bring it and you, you kind of turn your head a little bit and you give it because you know you've let them down. You know, I'll be honest, there have been times I've asked, why even bother anymore? Jesus, why even bother trying to conquer this? Because I keep letting you down. I keep coming to you for, for, for forgiveness. And the same thing I'd been asking you before. Should I even try again, God? Should I even bother letting you pick me up again? You know, as I read Matthew's story, if there's anyone who I, can, who I think can probably identify with this feeling, I think it's Matthew. You know, Matthew, um, it, the Bible tells us that his name was, was Levi. You know, as Brittany and I have begun to dream about, you know, our daughter's life and, and what she might be and the things she might do, you know, names just don't carry the same importance anymore, but the dreams are still there, right? And so names in Old Testament times were, were just these, these really significant things where you were trying to set the course for your child's life in the name that you gave your son or your daughter, and so in Old Testament times, to give your son the name of Levi was almost the highest and, and most weighty name you could give him because the tribe of Levites were the, the priestly and spiritual guides of Israel. And so whether or not, you know, you were in that family, you, you could still assign your child that name in order so that they would, they would aspire to be like that spiritual guide. One author says it this way. He says, to be given the name of Levi meant that your parents expected you to serve the Lord as the Levites of the Old Testament did. But here's the thing. You, you'll see when we, when we finally catch up to Matthew here in chapter 9. They're not serving the Lord. Right? I mean we catch it. We catch up with him and, and he's a tax collector. And to really understand like the weight of this. We've got to understand that like what a tax collector was back in that day. Was like everything that a loan shark would be today. Like added on top of that like traitor cheater, like swindler. I mean, these tax collectors would work with the hated imperial Romans. And they would take more from their own people that, than, than was asked for, and they would keep it. And, as a Jewish person, they were considered ceremonially unclean because they were always with the Gentiles, always with the Romans. And so, to be a tax collector was just about the worst possible thing you could choose to be in that day for the Jewish people. You know, how many of you saw the Bible series that was on the History Channel like a year ago? Yeah, a bunch of us. I went back and watched this part this week because it, it depicts this scene like really, really beautifully. You see Jesus and he's walking with his disciples. And even his disciples are looking at the tax collectors in their booth and they're muttering under their breath. Like, how could they possibly do that? How could they do that to us? Traitors. And then it, it pans over to Matthew and his eyes are just kind of big looking up at Jesus. And it pans back to the Pharisees. And you, you see them kind of spit in their direction. And they, they call them vermin. And so you can, you can be sure that Matthew had just been experiencing, experiencing this for a while. And so what he knew... And what he had learned was that the spiritual leaders are going to hate me. 
The spiritual leaders, the one who, who are of my faith, which I've kind of left behind, but they are going to hate me. And what I'm going to get from them is, is finger pointing and shaming. And then all the while, we've probably been hearing about this guy, Jesus. Jesus, the teacher. Jesus, the rabbi. And so he's wondering to himself, he's hearing these acts of mercy that Jesus has, has been doing and, and how kind he's been to people that normally spiritual guides aren't so kind to. And so that's why I think in this scene you see Matthew just lock into Jesus because he's like, finally, I'm going to find out where this guy is. And Jesus begins to give this parable, which we read about later. And really he's, he's telling them that I, I have come for the Matthews. And so as Jesus is... is speaking he's he's making his way towards matthew and and he's he's walking towards him and you see matthew he's got a tear that begins to run down his face as he understands what jesus is saying and and jesus walks to him and you see him just so gently and tenderly look down at matthew and and he extends his hand and in the scene he, he says come and in this text it says that he says follow me Follow me. And that was radical in that day. It was radical for a few reasons because Jesus, as a rabbi, knew that rabbis didn't invite people to follow them. The process in that day was that if you were, you were one of these rabbis or, or teachers or guides, what would happen is you would just kind of live your life. And then as people who wanted to be your disciple, they would just begin to, to trail with you. They would kind of follow you around, and when they got their moment, they would show you how wise they are, and they would, they would um, show you what they had memorized. And so eventually, after you know, 20 guys had been following you around, you would pick the cream of the crop. You would pick the best one, and you would say, okay, you can be my disciple. And the reason it was like this was because the disciples of these rabbis really reflected on the rabbi. And so if your disciples were a bunch of yahoos, then people looked at you and said, yeah, you're not that awesome either. If your disciples were dopes, then they, they looked at the teacher and they just said, yeah, you're not worth much. But when the, the disciples shined, then they would look at these rabbis and, and esteem them and say, yeah, you're, you're incredible. And so for Jesus to, to break that apart in and of itself was, was radical. For him to come and invite someone to be his disciple, to say, you will reflect on me. To say, your life and how you live will be a reflection of me was radical. But for him to choose a tax collector... I mean, he could not have picked a more hated person to identify himself with. It's radical. So often as we see Jesus' life, that's how he does it. Completely flips on its head the way things are done. You know, you look at the, the story of Matthew and we think, maybe he's the enigma. Maybe he's the, the person who, you know, all the other guys came around and said, you know, if we pick that one guy, I bet you we can show what it's like to, to follow Jesus. You know, so we'll take the tax collector and give us three years and we can shine him up a little bit and make him better. But then you look at the rest of the disciples and you realize Matthew was just like everyone else. And so you've got Peter, who's, you know, this courageous person who Jesus puts this incredible call in his life and says, I'll, I will build my church on you, Peter. The night Jesus is arrested, Peter is saying, if everyone else falls away, Jesus, I will never disown you. And the, the soldiers come, and, and, Jesus, and Peter's moment is here, and he pulls out the sword, and he cuts off the dude's ear, and he's like, yeah, I rose up. And Jesus puts the ear back, and he says, Peter, you don't understand. And then just a little while later, Peter's following Jesus, and he's warming his hands around a fire. And some of you know what happens. This young girl says, aren't you with him? That man who's just been dragged through the streets and arrested, aren't you with him? And Peter's like, I'm not with him. Mm-mm. And in his moment, 
steps down. He breaks his relationship with Jesus in that he says, I'm not with him. Don't associate with me with him. And the other ones, the story tells us, as Jesus is being arrested, they all just flee. They all run. And Mark actually tells us one dude flew, ran naked. I bet you that was awkward, right? I mean, these guys were not the cream of the crop. And Jesus looks at each of them and he says, I will associate myself with you. You will be my disciple. You will reflect on me. I wonder if you know what it's like to feel like Jesus has given you a moment and to not step up. Perhaps he's, he's given you a relationship and he knows that you are going to be one of the, the, the graces in this person's life that helps bring them along on their spiritual journey. And so the moment comes and they love you a softball, like, oh, you go to church? And you just kind of, yeah, I do. It's, yeah, I go to church, you know, and it's like, we want to go get some lunch. Right? And you feel like, man, Jesus, you gave me that moment. I didn't step up. You must be angry with me. God, you must be angry with me because I've let you down again. Again, I've let you down. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while and you can't shake this feeling that God is angry with you. You can't shake this feeling that surely God must be upset with me. I haven't really opened my Bible all that much in the last few weeks. My prayer time has been almost nothing. Surely, God, you're angry with me. Rather than allowing culture to dictate what our Heavenly Father feels about us, my aim today is to do nothing fancy. My aim is just to show you in the Scriptures how God feels about you. How God feels about you in that moment, in your mess. Some of us feel like, yeah, God probably loves me, but I'm pretty sure He doesn't like me. Pretty sure He doesn't like being around me. I'm just not good enough to be around a holy God. Sometimes as we've, we've come to um, our earthly fathers for forgiveness, what we've instead gotten is shame. We've gotten fingers pointed at us. And so we've said, if that's how fathers react when I come humbly for forgiveness, I'm just not doing it. I'm not doing it anymore. So my earthly father reacts like that, and he's messed up. Imagine how my heavenly father must act. He's holy. And so you just begin to pull back, and you just go, I'm not even going there anymore. I'm not even going to bother. I believe one of the things the Holy Spirit wants to tell you this morning is that your mistakes do not determine your merit. Your mistakes do not determine your merit before Him. There was a man named John Newton who lived uh, back in the 18th century. And like, like Matthew, likely, he, uh, he was born and his mom had these great dreams for his life. And she said, my son's going to be a pastor. My son's going to be a preacher. And so what ends up happening is this really sad story. His mom dies when he's six of tuberculosis. And so Matthew, as he begins to, to grow up, he, he, just, he goes the other direction, Matthew. I mean John. He runs the other direction. As he looks back in his life, he, he says these things about himself. He says, I loved sin, and I was unwilling to forsake it. He says, I liked talking of virtue. I liked talking a good game. I liked talking of the things of God. But my delight... And my habitual practice was wickedness. And I can relate to what that's like, to talk a big game and have my life look like something so different. I don't know if you can either. He describes himself as exceedingly wretched. And so he gets booted out of the Navy around 18 for deserting. And he ends up in the slave trade. I mean, what is more wretched than the slave trade? And this is where we, we pick up his story. 
And so it tells us that he's on the boat one night, and uh, he's just trying to pass the time, and he, he's looking around for a book, and he ends up grabbing a book, which has come to become sort of a Christian classic. It's called On the Imitation of Christ by this guy named Thomas Kempis, and he's reading it, and this guy is, is painting this beautiful picture of the gospel. He's, he's pointing just a beautiful picture of Jesus, and, jo- and John Newton's reading this, and, and he slams it shut, because he goes, if that's true, I don't even want to know. Because I, I am too great a sinner to be forgiven. And so he says, ignorance is bliss. I don't even want to know. If this, if this Jesus thing is true, I would rather not even be aware that it's real. And so that night, this massive storm comes up. And, and it looks like this ship is literally about to, about to go under. And he surprises himself because he yells out, Lord, have mercy on us. And the ship makes it through the night. It begins to just go, man, I, I think there might be something to this. There might be something going on. He decides to investigate it a little bit further. And so he finds a Bible and uh, begins to read it. And, and he just says, by the time I got back to shore a while later, I think I was a Christian. He was still working through some stuff and, and still, you know, getting his head around what this slave trading thing was. And was it wrong and was it not wrong? And so he, he had a lot of growing to do. But he says, by the time I got back to shore, I was a follower of Jesus. See, John Newton had an encounter of grace. So much so that he went on to pen arguably the most well-known song throughout the entire world, Amazing Grace. Because he tasted it. He knew it. He had an encounter with Jesus. And maybe you find yourself today, like John Newton once thought, saying, "I, I am too great a sinner to be forgiven. Maybe you're here this morning, and you like... You like the church thing. You like kind of what it does and, and what, it, what it stirs up for you. But if you're honest, when it comes to like genuine faith in Jesus, like man, there, there isn't a whole lot there. And you're the one with the arm out trying to keep God at a distance because you're just saying, you couldn't possibly love me. Not with what I've done. Not with where I've been. Not with what I've done. Not with the mistakes I've made. God, you couldn't love me. And so like he slammed that book shut, you're almost like, I don't even want to let myself go there because I'm afraid of what I'll find if I choose to believe that Jesus is real and that forgiveness and grace is real. I don't even want to go there. Let me just put a couple scriptures here before you. Jesus has made a path of restoration for you. And and let me read a little bit of this. Colossians 2.4 says this. says, He canceled the record of the charges against us. And he took it away by nailing it to the cross. Romans 5.8 says this. says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I I don't know if you picked that up. While... We were still sinners. When we were in our sin, not after I'd cleaned myself up, not after I got myself sober, not after I'd stopped sleeping with my girlfriend. No, in your sin, Christ has died for you. So if you've got the arm up to God saying, you couldn't love me, God is saying, but I do. And you're saying, no, you couldn't possibly. And he's saying, I have. And you're saying, Jesus couldn't have died for me. And Jesus is saying, I did. What more can I do for you? I've given you in my word. He's like, I want to speak to your heart because I have. The very things you think I can't do, I've done. So put your arm down and let me swallow you up with this love and grace that you know you so desperately need. So Jesus has for you this morning. He wants you to know that. While you were dead in your sins, Jesus has determined your merit. Your mistakes do not determine 
your merit. Jesus has looked upon you and said, I will give my life for that person. And he has deemed you worthy of the ultimate sacrifice. He determines your merit, not your mistakes, not your past, not your sin. Jesus determines your merit. Maybe that's not you, though. Maybe you say, Mike, I get it, right? If I'm the person who hasn't been following Jesus, like it's pretty easy to live a life that doesn't necessarily honor him. But what about me? I was listening to Adam speak yesterday at the Brave Generation. He said, man, I got saved when I was four. And I was like, whoa, that's a long life of following Jesus. So what if you're that person, right? What if, what if you've been following Jesus for a while and you're like, man, what about me? I, I know grace. I know forgiveness. And I'm the one still goofing up and messing up. You talk about shame. I know Jesus has paid for my sins, and yet I keep doing them. What do I do with that? What do I do is I just, I, I want to turn my back in embarrassment and in shame. Let me just put some scriptures before you as well this morning. I want to remind you of a few things. 1 John 1 9 says this It says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not that he doesn't care, but he has forgiven you. He has forgiven you. And and I want you to just hear that and to allow the the hope and the joy in your spirit to begin to well up. Psalm 139 tells us that that God literally knit us together in your mother's womb. And so you've you've got a father and a creator who has made every single intimate detail of your life. He's coming to you and he's saying, my son, my daughter, I love you. I love you. Don't let your grace... Don't let your sin outweigh my grace. It's the second thing today. His grace outweighs your sin. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying God doesn't care about your sin. God cares very much about it. First Peter says this. It says, you shall be holy as I am holy. God cares about you becoming more like his son. He cares about those habitual things that you keep falling in. But he doesn't care about them in the way that he says, you know what? Tired of you messing up. He doesn't care in the way that he says, you know what, I'm sick of you falling on your face. He cares in the way that he says, my child, come running back to me and we will go after those things. We will root out those weeds, but I won't let you allow those things to keep you from me. Jesus says, my grace outweighs your sin. He says, I came so that I could offer that to you. I came so that I could, I could give that to you. Third thing I want you to hear is, is this idea of don't run from life. And what I mean by that is, I don't know if you can relate, but, but as I've been following Jesus for a while, I began to get in this pattern where I'd make a mistake and I'd be like, ah, not again. And so what I would do is, is like for a week or so, I would basically turn my back on God. And I'd be like, God doesn't want to spend time with me. God doesn't want to hear from me in prayer. I'm just such a loser. And I turn my back and I run away. And it's almost like I got I to do my penance. But what I'm doing is I'm clinging to my self-righteousness because I'm saying, you know what? I can do better. I can clean myself up. And then I can go back to God. And God's looking down at me and he's saying, man, we're losing time. We're losing precious time. I've got kingdom work and kingdom things for you to do. But you've got your back to me. He's saying, yeah, you messed up, and it was stupid, and I agree. But I want you back. I want to cleanse you of that. I want to forgive you so that we can get back on course, pursuing this mission, this calling that I put on your life. And yet we've got our back turned to him. You know, I begin to, I've, 
have learned that a mark of maturity in the Christian's life is in the moment of weakness, in the moment of shame, you run to life rather than from it. Because you've found that the very thing you need is only found at the feet of Jesus. And as we grow and we become more like him, we find that the Father's arms are open in our moments of weakness. Prodigal son story paints such a beautiful picture of that for us, doesn't it? Yeah. Let's stand together. The last thing I think Jesus wants you to hear this morning is that your story is not yet done. Your your story is not yet complete. You know, the beauty of the, the story of Matthew is that when we meet him, he's at the lowest of the low. He couldn't be farther from being a man of God. He's sitting at the tax collector's booth. And, and tradition tells us that, that Matthew, after spending time with Jesus for those few years, he eventually became the gateway to Africa for us. And it says later on in his, his life, what he did was he, he died as a missionary martyr in Ethiopia. Matthew learned that his story wasn't done when he looked back on his life. He said, when I met Jesus and I had an encounter of grace, that was the beginning of my story. That was when it began. That was not when it ended. John Newton, this guy who his, his life is, is marked by sin and by ugliness. We pick up, he's, he's selling and buying lives. I mean, what's uglier than that? What is worse, worse than that? And he has an encounter of grace. He comes to know Jesus. And it tells us that eventually he leaves the, the slave trade and, and he becomes a pastor. And it tells us that what happens is he, he's, he's running this small church and he's got this young boy who grows up in his congregation. This young boy who he mentors and he pours his life into. And this boy is William Wilberforce. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because William Wilberforce was the man who gave his life to eradicate slavery in England. And William Wilberforce looks back on his life and he says, my pastor John Newton is the one who pushed me forward in my fight to end slave trade. He points back at his pastor and says, I don't know if I would have made it if my pastor hadn't pushed me along the way to spend my life working for this. And William Wilberforce, if you know the story, just a couple days before his death in 1833 sees the abolition of the slave trade in England because of John Newton, the slave trader who pushed the young boy into his fight to end slavery. So I wonder today if you need a fresh encounter of grace, if you've begun to believe your sin has, has put up a wall that, that Jesus can't break through. If you've begun to believe that, that your mistakes have determined you, your merit before him and deemed you unworthy. What Jesus wants you to hear today is it's not true. He says, I gave my life in order so that I could forgive those things and you and I could run together in relationship. And I began to picture like, like what if this room right, was marked with people whose lives had been just full of grace encounters. What would this church begin to look like as we began to, to see how Jesus has forgiven us? He has picked us up. He said, I have given my life so that you don't need to hang out down there in the mud. And we began to run together. Our church is, is, is marked by this, this beauty of the gospel. 
and it transcends race. And people from different social backgrounds are sitting together because they say, my life is not marked by what I've been given. My life is not marked by what I've done. My life is not marked by what I do. My life is marked by the beauty of the gospel. And so I will spend my life with this church on mission for God. It's a church I would be excited to be a part of. Amen? Yeah. Yeah, Jesus, we love you. The depths of all that we have to be thankful for, we could not plumb them. We could spend our entire life thanking you, worshiping you, and it feels like we just scratched the surface for all that you've done for us. So we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you've won for us. We thank you for the, the new identities that you've put in us. You don't look at us and call us sinner. You look at us and call us son or daughter. We thank you for that, God. And we love you. If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.